Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb. I'm here with Alex, Adam, and I'm Daryl. And this week's topic is going to be a fun one. We kind of hit on it a little bit. Uh, we're bringing up, uh, I think, when we're talking about the Immaculate Conception. Uh, you know, a few the, the Virgin, virgin Birth. Virgin Birth. Yeah, yeah. Well, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, I don't know why that's the one that came to my head. But anyway, what's the topic then? Yeah, the topic is uh, going to be Mother Mary. We're going to be talking about. The Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Our Lady, as she's often called, East and West. Yes. Yes. So, how do we want to start this off, Father Errol? Everything is in Lord of the Rings, Caleb. <laughs> everything? Almost everything. This again. I'm telling you, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And, um, you know, I would suspect that a large percentage of our listeners nerd out over Lord of the Rings. And many of them, us, are really suspicious of this new series coming out from Amazon. <laughs> it's not going to be good. Yeah. It's it's just not. Yeah. Uh, and I say that because Tolkien infamously did not write an allegory like C.S. Lewis and Narnia, but also less infamously, but as true, consciously wrote portions of his story reflecting Christian truths. He says he did it. So when you look at Galadriel, the Lady of Light, you see, <laughs> or okay. I'm serious, I'm serious, or <laughs> you guys, do you think I'm making a joke? Or you look? You know at, you're not. That's why we're laughing. <laughs> you look at in the um, in the Silmarillion for the hardcore fans, no, the. The lady, I forget their their names. I get them all mixed up sometimes. But it's in Lord of the Rings. You get the High Elves and the Men of Numenor, you know, those with long lives, uh, referring to Elbereth, right? It's uh, the cry out to her. What is going on with the doctrine of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Christian history? What's going on in Scripture, Genesis to Revelation for that matter? And for many of our listeners— I would recommend that they, because some of them may never, they may not have heard the information we're going to get into here. Think about Tolkien's fantasy world that he created, where he forms these characters who capture, in one sense or another, especially the one, the, the female characters I've just mentioned, um, some something about the Blessed Virgin, because we do a very, 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 very bad job, as in many American Protestant churches. Because we roll her out at Christmas or carry her out at Christmas and plug her in so that she glows with the other portions of the nativity. And then we'd put her back in the closet and cover her up with everything else that we use for decorations. She's on par with Santa Claus. And that is a woeful, woeful appreciation and doesn't begin to come near to what the Gospel of Luke says uh, when she's greeted in a way that no one else in the Bible is greeted. And then when she speaks to say that she's going to be called blessed by every generation. So I would start there. I would start there. I'm impressed <laughs> by your uh, knowledge of Lord of the Rings. Thank you. <laughs> um, honestly, I don't think I've ever paid attention to something that closely to be able to pull out all You're not going to get it from the movies <laughs> quite the same way. Yeah, it's only, I've, I think I've only watched the movies. Right. I mean, my hat's off to Peter Jackson because even like a lot of the background chanting are songs from the book. You know, yeah. that they, they wove into it. It's very, he did a really good job. But in the books, you get a lot more of those those echoes, right? 
You know, like Eric Warren's not a, a self-doubting would-be king. Like, he's ready to go take charge. Yeah. Gandalf's not afraid of anything. He's like, come on, I'm going to throw you down on the mountainside, you know. We should do an episode just on the types and shadows in the Lord of the Rings. I have a friend of mine who went to Gordon Conwell and did a class in seminary on the apocalyptic nature of Lord of the Rings from Tolkien. Really? Yes. It was a seminary class. I went to a Tolkien seminar once. <laughs> did you? <laughs> pretty good, yeah. I had. I was like, all right, this sounds pretty good. Was it? Yeah, actually, that was pretty good. Where, where was that at? Uh, when I was down at Southwestern. Really? Yeah. Was that school-sponsored? I guess. I mean, it was in the, what's, I forget, the big building they got down there. The yeah, new it was school-sponsored. Well, point being, <laughs> that, <laughs> that the, <laughs> man, the man created a huge fantasy world, but then loaded it with so much Christian symbolism. Yeah. So, uh, again... Because let's let's so let's jump into the topic on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Where's the first passage of Scripture that talks about her? Oh, here we go. Trick question time. Trick questions. <laughs> dun, dun. Like actually directly talks about her. Yes. Uh, we got. I know what he's. I still know the. What's the answer? Genesis three. Genesis three. <sighs> right. I'll put I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. Yeah. What's the last passage in Scripture that's talking about her? Revelation. Where at? Revelation 12. Yeah. So Genesis to Revelation, there's an entire <laughs> canonical doctrine of the Blessed Virgin Mary and therefore femininity. You can see, I don't know how much we'll get into that on this, but you can see the collapse of gender distinctions and trace that historically to the to the denigration of who she is in the in the Protestant churches and then just the, the free church approach. How, again, she's plugged in at Christmas if it goes that far. Um, so what's the what's the female icon? You know what what is the icon for for women in the church? Um, it's not Mary. Hasn't been for a long time. And who is the icon in Scripture? The the individual person who represents the body of Christ in Scripture. It's her. Like it's all through the New Testament. And then when we go back to the Old Testament, we see it in type and shadow. And so what we want to do is kind of unpack why that is the case and to see that. The scripture says a great deal about her, even though we would disagree with certain particularities from the Roman Catholics. There's still a great deal about her in scripture that we should be acknowledging and making part of our, our experience as Christians. So Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, and I think the, the interesting part about Mary is, um, from what we understand, and even looking at some tradition, is that the writers of the, mm -hmm. the New Testament were in interaction with her. Yes. Which I think, I mean, I can only imagine well, it shows how awesome that. that would have been. Like yeah. that, I mean, that's pretty incredible to, to, to do that and then to, to think about that, to almost bring these two things together because many times the narrative, when you look at the narrative of like the Gospels, it's like it's almost, all right, here's the, here's the nativity and then Jesus' ministry. But right. it's, 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 you plug those things together and obviously they're not two different ideas. But I think it's really an interesting. Mm -hmm. idea. The, Ch the Chosen did that in one of the episodes where they've got uh, Luke talking to Mary to write an account. And there's a lot of Bible scholars who think that's what happened. How does Luke know what she pondered in her heart? How does he know some of these very personal details unless she's the source? And you see some of that uh, higher text criticism. You see that some of that Hebrew idiom reflected in the way Luke is using his Greek language in chapter one of his gospel, that he's getting this from somebody else. He's not just writing it. Uh, from his own his own language. So let's let's start there, uh, knowing that we could go to Genesis or we could go to Revelation. But let's start in Luke's Gospel. Luke presents Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. 
So in the same way that David moves the Ark of the Covenant across the hill country of Judea, and then it is um, mishandled, and Uzzah is struck down, and then it spends three months at the house of Obed-Edom, and Obed-Edom is blessed. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yes. Okay. Well, Luke uses the same lingo. He, he's, he's quoting without saying, as it's written in the books of... He doesn't do that, but he's using the same language, and you see it in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Mary moves, she travels across the hill country of Judea, and then she goes and she stays three months at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house, and they're blessed. The word for uh, exceeding, the, the exceedingly rejoicing, the exceeding rejoicing nature of Elizabeth's shout when she's greeted by Mary. That phrase, that word is used five or six times in the Greek Old Testament. Every time it is used, it is used in reference to people rejoicing and worship in front of the ark. So what the Bible says about David, the way he leapt and mm-hmm. danced and rejoiced before the ark of the covenant, is the same word that's used only for that in the Old Testament is what's used for Elizabeth when Mary greets her. And there's leaping. It just so happens to be John the Baptist in the womb. And Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit at Mary's greeting. So Luke presents her as the personification of the Ark of the Covenant. And then Paul will use the same language for the temple and the Ark of the Covenant for the church. So Mary is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. This is what Gabriel says is going to happen in the same way that the tabernacle is overshadowed in Exodus chapter 40. So the glory cloud overshadows the tabernacle and then dwells in the ark. So Mary is overshadowed by the glory and then indwelt by the word becoming flesh. Paul says that we are strengthened by the spirit in our innermost being and so that the word of Christ may richly dwell within us. So a lot of the language is purposefully used for her and Luke's gospel to show how she is the personification of the Old Testament temple and the Ark of the Covenant, and then how the church has that very particular, what we'll call Marian quality, that what God is doing for her personally, he's now doing corporately for the church. I think that in and of itself is mind-boggling to the modern, let's plug in the the, uh, the blow-up nativity set. I think for me, coming from the background that I come from, like Mary wasn't important. You know what I mean? Like, she wasn't important to me at all, really. You know, she was just part of the narrative, part of the story. Like, I always thought that people, especially from different traditions, really worshipped Mary, and they prayed to her and all this stuff. And it's just understanding, first of all, she is important. The Scripture says she's important. And why is she important? And I know that's what we're going to be pulling out of here. And, like, of course we don't pray to her. You know what I mean? And I know we're going to get to that, like what, how she prays for us and how she intercesses for us. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to start bringing up stuff that we're going to talk about later, but I just like Jesus tells her, tells in when he does his first miracle, do what the woman tells you. You know what I mean? Like, and that's talking about the wine. He says, you know, she says, do whatever he tells you. Oh, that's yeah. That's yeah. yeah, You know what I mean? Sorry. (laughs) Um, but that, and that's the point, like, you know what I mean? But like, that's the point, like being an intercession for us, like mm-hmm. she's the one that intercessed in the first place. That's what I'm trying to say. So just trying to understand, like, because this is, you know, new, this is a new concept. So like, maybe it's going to be new for some of our listeners. Like, how do we honor and revere somebody, you know? Right. There are Christians who have problems with icons and pictures of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They think that it's idolatry. 
I would ask them then, do you have pictures of your family up in your home? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I mean, do you have pictures of loved ones up in your house? Right. And so that's part of the, the whole devotion of her and, and any of the other saints, you know, having some, some pictorial representation. It's not idolatry. Uh, it's, it's much more gratitude, thanksgiving, and, and love, really, uh, for her faithfulness to God and giving birth to Christ. So let me, you mentioned the Cana event there, Alex. Let's, let's press into that text for a moment. You know, that is expanded. That is being expanded that John is taking the account of Cana of Galilee and he's tying it together one with the the other miracles that are happening in the in the passage preceding and right after right. the way he's got that you know sandwiched together but then he's also paralleling it with the event at the cross at the crucifixion because Mary is there as well um, she's not speaking there her last words in scripture are are there in John's gospel in chapter 2 do whatever he tells you there's significance there yeah. but it's it's the third day it's a wedding and there's that emphasis in John's gospel, all his his details are, are significant. Third day, here's resurrection, here's wedding. Uh, so here's the the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they've run out of wine. And what is the wine? The, well, the wine's the Eucharist, right? right. All of that's going to get picked up through John's gospel. What is she saying, right, when she realizes that they've run out of it? That we have that causes us to ask a couple questions. One of them is, did she understand? How much did she understand? Not Mary, did you know? But how much did she understand... <laughs> about her role as queen mother. So if we go back into the Old Testament, Jesus is the son of David. Correct. We see that, right? Well, who is the son of David who becomes king in the Old Testament? Solomon. 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 What does Solomon do for Bathsheba, his mother? It's in 2 Kings. Lots. Solomon sets up a throne next to his and has her sit there and there she talks to him and intercedes, specifically for Abijah, uh, Solomon's uh, brother, who's tried to become king instead. But she says, um, she sits there and he says, uh, ask me whatever you want and I'll do it for you. And then he doesn't. Right? So she she asks for some some mercy for Abijah and, and specifically for Abishag. Uh, there's a whole account there. Go back and read it. The, the point I want to emphasize is how he grants her request and then doesn't. Right. So how much and this that practice of not the king's wife being the queen, but the king's mother being the queen, the queen mother. This is something all through ancient Israel. And you see it preserved even in the book of Daniel with um, the overthrow of the various kingdoms there. So you've got this happening now. Did Mary understand that she well, she did know she was the mother of the Messiah, of the Christ, and that her child was the son of David, who would have the throne of his father David, and he would reign forever, right? What did that look like in her mind? See, that's a question that's that's hard to answer. We don't know it, but this is the time to ask the question with mystery, with wonder, to prayerfully speculate on that. How much of that did she comprehend? And then you move forward and you see in her song. When she says in Luke's gospel that she's blessed, that the mighty have been overthrown, that the, the humble have been exalted, that she is she's aware that that song is about herself and all of God's people. So when she goes and tells the servants or talks to the servants, you know, and she tells him they're out of wine, she is at least imitating the role of the queen mother in the Old Testament. Right. 
And to kind of harken back to what we talked about in our previous episode about the way Scripture, there's a there's an ontology, there's a beingness in Scripture um, to these effects and these events. She has an intercession before the throne in a particular way because is is Jesus still Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish man, the son of David? He is. So therefore, he's still the son of Mary of Bethlehem. The danger, and because people are already running to this in their minds, that they're like, "Oh, well, you're saying that, you know, we we only go to heaven because of her, or because you, you people quickly jump into errors." And don't do that. Don't do that. First, acknowledge what the scripture is clearly teaching, right. and that in and of itself is going to have a very, very strong reset button for a lot of people. Then, when you come, but you 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 spend some time praying into that and thinking about that, then you can come back around to some of these other questions that right now are really bizarre, and you'll discover some are bizarre and should be rejected, but some are right. But you don't do that first. First, reckon and wrestle with what the scripture is really saying. Another example in scripture. The new Jerusalem is called our mother, the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul says it in Galatians 4. Paul is contrasting in Galatians 4 the fatherhood of God and how God the Father is the father of Christ, and now he's ours by the Holy Spirit. So we're not supposed to be walking in the flesh. That's in Galatians 4. At the end of the chapter, he's saying he's contrasting pictures now, but he's, he's still continuing the same idea. We are children not of Hagar, the law of the law, but of the heavenly city. And he doesn't name Mary. He doesn't name her when he says born of a woman in the beginning of the chapter. And he doesn't name her at the end. But he's paralleling in the same way that Mary is the mother of Christ. We are children of the heavenly city, the children of promise. There's another picture. And you see that picked up. You mentioned it at the beginning in Revelation 12, right? So the picture of this heavenly city. So her role in that, right? And we could keep going into more and more pictures that where she's part of God's redemptive plan, not because she's the one working redemption, she's the recipient of it as much as anybody else is, but she has a role in it. And what's some of the irony here is that if we were talking about Elijah and talk about how he was caught up into heaven, uh, you know, with, with the, the whirlwind and the chariot of fire and all of this, and how many Christians for a long time and Jews have believed that Elijah will come back physically. Everybody's cool with that. But if you start talking about the mother of God, the Theotokos, people quickly jump into cries of, of idolatry. Well, back your train up, buddy. Throw the brakes on that thought for a moment, and let's start looking at what the Scripture really says about her. And you're, you're going to discover that she's, it says a whole lot more about her than it does Elijah. So why are you ignoring her so much? And that's even kind of going off what Alex was saying, you know, looking at our prayer book, I mean, evening prayer, the Magnificat. Right. It's right in there. It's very much so part of versus like I was pondering on that um, last year of why was this not a part of my regular prayer? Daily prayer. Right. Like, yeah. And I think a lot of it is just that that disposition against. Yeah. It's like we're going to do the opposite of what they did because of potential error. Mm hmm. And uh, I, th I think it's it's really like a lot of this stuff is not even looked into because oh, I don't want to get near that. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to take the chance. Right. I don't, you know, because there are errors there. But I mean, it's a terrible reason not to do something. Well, let's let's talk about a couple of things in relation to her that the early reformers agreed upon. And this is going to shock people. Most of them believed that she never sinned, that she didn't sin. She lived a sinless life. Now, it was because of grace. 
Don't don't the, 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 the not the immaculate conception idea that she was born without it. Not that, um, but that she was completely and entirely sanctified. Well, why would they believe that? Well, because she's the Ark of the Covenant. Luke again. Luke clearly presents that in Scripture. So, what had to happen for the Ark of the Covenant one to be made and then to be consecrated for sacred use to contain the glory? And then, what happened to the people Uzzah who mishandled the Ark? They died. wasn't good. Now, think about Joseph's behavior in relationship to her now, with the appearing of the angel and Joseph being a righteous man. This isn't just an abstract idea. They know what's going on. They know principally what's going on far more than many American Christians. So, you see you see that, right? So, they, many of the early reformers said she didn't sin. She didn't, she didn't sin. She didn't sin because she had been sanctified by grace. And, well, where's that in Scripture? When Gabriel greets her and he says, hail, a lot of translations now say uh, highly favored or favored one. Well, yes, the Greek word can mean that, but it means more. And you see the more captured in Jerome's Latin translation of the Vulgate. And that's where the English uh, full of grace comes from. And what the the Greek word is saying is that, and the Latin captures it uh, clearly, in contrast to other Greek words. So, for example, Stephen's called full of grace in the book of Acts, but it's a different Greek word, even though the English is translated the same. The Greek word that's used for Mary, that again, Jerome highlights in the Latin, means fully filled up, meaning there's nothing about her person that is not now consumed entirely by God's grace. She's thoroughly, completely, totally sanctified and blameless in the sight of God. She's found favor. She doesn't ask for favor like the patriarchs do in in Genesis. She's already been given it. And the Greek tense indicates that God decided to do this for her. Again, there are folks who are like, I don't know. The prophet Jeremiah was called to be a prophet while in the womb. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and I called you to be a prophet. Paul in Galatians 1, before he was born, God knew and, and, and called him and selected him for this. Mary was selected by God to be the mother of Christ. Okay, So there's a difference between the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, as many of them believe, that it's the greeting of the angel, the word of God, that gives her this sanctification, whereas the Rome, Rome is taught uh, as dogma you know, for the past 130 years or so that she was born that way. And when they say born that way, what they're saying is Mary was born the way Christians are when they get baptized. Okay. I think the scriptural, and I realize people argue both ways scripturally, but I think scripture lends itself much more so that she was already living some kind of devoted life to the Lord and that the word of the angel is what works this sanctifying effect in her. I think that's that's a bit more scriptural than than the other. Um, Even so... That debate is nowhere near as important as the fact that she was completely sanctified. And you say, well, we just don't see that in Scripture. What do you mean? Paul says to the Thessalonians, may the God of peace sanctify you wholly, body, soul, and spirit. And what you're seeing, again, is how she's already the recipient of that pre-incarnation so the incarnation can happen. So many of the early reformers, and I'm fairly confident, I have to go back and look up the actual citation. Calvin said the same thing, because uh, Calvin doesn't adopt some of the other uh, belief systems, because he doesn't see it doesn't see it as the case, like Luther does and some of the others, but um, that she lived a sinless life. The other doctrine that was agreed upon uh, 
is that she was engaged in heavenly intercession. She was actively praying for the church. Uh, Luther infamously prayed his rosary every day. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in a couple of his earlier, I don't know how late it is. I say earlier. I want to say it's, which writing was it? In some of his writings, in the preface to the theological writings he's putting together, he actually acknowledges he's entrusting the work to her intercession that it be effective. The early church didn't have a problem with the intercession of the saints, the advocacy of the saints, that the saints are praying for us, because the early Christians did not largely come from the group of the Sadducees. They came from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, while they did not reckon the apocryphal books to be inspired, did believe the accounts in the apocryphal books to be observed. Case in point, Hanukkah, which is in 2 Maccabees. And in 2 Maccabees, there's the uh, uh, Judas Maccabeus who's having a dream or a vision, he's not sure, of the prophet Jeremiah and the high priest Onias who had been martyred, both praying for Israel. In the book of Revelation in chapter 8, the saints in heaven are praying. The early Christians had no problem with this whatsoever. Mary and the saints don't turn into alternate gods until later in medieval tradition through very poor catechesis and explanation of Scripture. Again, look at what the Scripture clearly says, then move forward into history. So when you look at the early Reformers and you see that they believed that she lived a sinless life um, and that she was praying for them in heaven, none of that would have been outside of the pale, right, or, um, for them. Another key Marian doctrine, and this one's not recorded in Scripture, so the next question is, is it resonant with Scripture? And it's that she was bodily assumed into heaven. Well, where does that come from? In early Christian history, and it's fairly unanimous, there's really not any disagreement on this, the sources that are present say that she was bodily taken into heaven after she died. Now, Rome teaches that she didn't die because they say she never sinned, so she didn't suffer death. Well, that's not the record of the early fathers um, and the larger traditions and legends. I mean, there's flat-out legends start to develop around this because it's a big, it's a big deal in Christian history. Uh, but that, that she did die and that was bodily taken into heaven. Well, is that congruent with Scripture? Either one of those, for that matter. Is it possible that she didn't die and was taken straight into heaven? Sure. Right. Who's the first one in the Bible? Oh, man. Enoch. Enoch. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yes, Enoch. Who's the second one? Elijah. And who's the third one that's hinted at after he died? Moses. Moses. And Jude is referring to this in his letter, that my, Michael and the devil fought over the body of Moses. And so then, uh, in the assumption of Moses is what he's referring to, and then because of that fight and what the devil was going to do to degrade the body of Moses, you know, God takes Moses' body to heaven. Are we going to say that the Theotokos is less important in the eyes of God than Enoch, Elijah, or Moses? No way. Right. So, just because the scripture doesn't say, and here's, here's a key Anglican importance, just because the scripture doesn't say that it didn't happen doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Right. Right? So, how do we, how do we quantify it? How do we, how do we measure that? And this goes back into our stuff we did with Richard Hooker some months ago now. If it's not in scripture, then it's not something that's day for day. It's not something that's expected to be believed as a matter of faith. But if it truly happened... And the whole church agrees that it happened. Why would we disagree with it? Right. So the majority Anglicans who've taken the time to look at it, who are not swept up in some of the other newer philosophies of the day, will tell you, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, she was taken to heaven. How? I don't know. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? So th- there's there's consensus on th- why would we disagree with the fathers of the church? But at the same time, let's not fall into the other error of raising this to the level of an issue that's day for day because scripture doesn't. But does it posit her in heaven as someone of significant authority and influence and where she's called the mother of the church? Yes. Because in Revelation 12, the dragon goes off to make war against her offspring. And who is that? Those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. It's right there in the passage. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 11, John says, I saw heaven opened and he says, and I saw the Ark of the Covenant. And the very next thing he sees is the woman standing on the moon, clothed with the sun with the 12 stars, and she's pregnant with Christ. And if I understand the Greek there, she's always pregnant. Not meaning she's always pregnant with Christ, but there's that picture of the mother, you know, uh, the mother, Holy Mother Church, yeah. which Cyprian is talking about in, in 249. So this is not medieval idolatry. That exists, by the way, but I don't think most people that we know, I mean, the, as we're sitting at this table, and I would venture the majority of the folks that are going to listen to this podcast, most of the folks that we know that we will talk to about this are not in danger of idolatry like that. They're in danger much more so of the error they're already in by not giving her the honor that the Holy Spirit gives her, that the angels give her, that Elizabeth gives her, that the Lord gives her. Think about that, how she is, she bears the incarnate word. She's like, she's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit to bear the incarnate word, but then she's there on the day of Pentecost. What is, what is that like? Like what psych, like I don't even, the scripture Psychologically, what is that? Like, what is that? How does that work? But it's staggering. Yeah. It's it's incredible. You know, I think it's funny. A lot of people I talk to about this, um, and I'm like, you, you know the you know the reformers. This is kind of what they thought. Like, oh, you don't know, Mike. Well, they said it, and they're like, well, I didn't like them anyways. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> like, they're heretics anyway. So what do they know? It's like, oh, all right, never mind. I thought you'd you know be down with the reformers since you're like Protestant and stuff, but. Mm-hmm. Okay, never mind. Like, mm-hmm. I guess I'm the dumb one. That that is the irony. Um, everybody, well, that's what and this and that's. Uh, here's what I've heard from folks. Well, the reformers were just teaching us that we needed to be agreeable to scripture, and they hadn't gotten far enough away from the errors to realize how much of the errors they were still retaining. And I think that is a very arrogant hermeneutic. Yeah, yeah. The the one the specific one when I you know even like talking about Luther, you know, he goes from being this like this brave, bold man who looked the establishment in the eye and, you know, wrote this piece and um, just bold, just bold, brave, led by the Holy Spirit. And then you tell him, oh, well, he also thought this, what? Like, well, yeah, he was a, he was a drunk, you flashlight <laughs> demons away. You know, like. <laughs> he was just, schizophrenic. Yeah, schizophrenic. Like, I, like he broke his vows. He made a promise and then he got, you know, got married. Like, I'm like, come, come on, y'all. Like, yeah, how that. In 30 seconds, how'd this man go from being this awesome man of God to, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, this, this villain? You know, one of the things to consider here with Marian doctrine and then the, um, the devotion that she receives is look at how the East and the West agree. Where do the Eastern traditions and the Western traditions agree? And what we start to realize is how much we're out of step with that agreement. Right. And when we can step into that agreement... We won't fall into the errors of either. And I realize that I've just really offended 
a lot of the Roman and Orthodox uh, uh, believers who have a very strong, very often very strong piety for the Mother of God. And I am not in any way trying to disparage that because, again, I think we've gone the opposite way. Yeah. We, we've undervalued you know, who she is in the church, uh, how she impacts the church today, um, and how really genuinely she is the icon for women in the church. Yeah. Think think about I know a lot of women in the church who feel like Mary Magdalene because they've had lives that are not have not been pure the way that they wanted them to be, especially as they've gotten older. And so they feel a strong affinity for Mary Magdalene. And I appreciate that. I I, I think that's that's good. You know, that there's redemptive quality there. Also at the same time, why not transition that that appreciation then to the Blessed Virgin who lived a life of purity and asked God for that grace? That way you don't end up living in a in, in poor memory. Yeah. But you live in the hope of redemption. That's awesome. Because what God did in her and for her is what he's doing for the whole church. I think part of that is even uh, the self-deprecating element of many people's yeah. sanctification process. Right. I'm like, that doesn't sound like... Yeah. That doesn't, because that doesn't sound like the whisper to me. I don't know. It could just be me. I don't know. People don't equate sanctification with joy. They equate it with pain. And that's that's a bad equation. Yeah, pain's a part, but the fruit is joy. And so as long as we see holiness and sanctification as degrading or depressing or the absence of, of enjoyment, we're missing the point. That's not what it is. Sanctification is the removal of those things that hinder divine joy, knowing that those things are often sinful and sometimes they're just distractions. distractions. And in the Blessed Virgin, you see a life where she is fully filled and overshadowed, and walking around with God inside of her so that her greetings to people is how that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't know. I think that'd be pretty neat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know? I just, you know, we were were kind of talking about this a little bit yesterday. Like, there's so many women's authors out there and hear me hear me hear me where i'm going like and like (laughs) is this going to be another chain the bible love kind of moment (laughs) so there's so many women authors out there and then like i know i know that the women that are close to me you know in my life family sisters you know stuff like that anyway they um they really attach on to these authors and uh you know there's a reason we were talking about this and the, the authors like and they just they really they tried to emulate off their writing and all their joy all their devotions and all that stuff which is good it's good to have joy and it's good to have devotionals and stuff you know but you know like you said like they have they don't realize how if they can you know look to Mary to be the woman of God that we're supposed to be, you know what I mean, or not we, you know what I mean. <laughs> that they're supposed <laughs> Something to be. we should know. <laughs> but that's the thing; like they always they set these goals on people, you know these these authors or or, or these uh, preachers or whatever these these people are, but they don't they don't set their goal as to be them, as to be the Mother Mary. Like for me, like my goal, you know, you know, I want to follow after you, Father Darrell, but my goal is not to be you. My Thank goal you. is to be. More like Christ, Amen. but you know, I'm following you as you follow Christ. I'm sorry, and, you know what I mean? like, but that's the same type of concept of people just don't realize the importance of the mother, of the queen mother. And if we could just, I, I, I think that's the importance. Like, yes, in the Old Testament, uh, in Hosea and in some other passages, uh, Zephaniah and Zechariah, uh, the virgin daughter of Zion mm-hmm. who's going to give birth, that's Mary. The the land. That's a suddenly that's been barren 
is all of a sudden going to be fruitful and God will marry the land, right? That's Mary because she's that she's the recipient of all, of all of those promises. And the fruit is Christ. Yeah. Right. So all that's in, in, in the scripture. Then when you, you look at those passages and you come forward now into the new Testament, you see how Mary is the type, the icon of the church herself. Okay. So it's, this is how we can we can look at say okay here is how the church is has a Marian quality character to be like her so that we say whatever he says we will do or we say like she said be it unto me according to your word and so when you look at what she says and what the angel says and how much of that gets echoed by Jesus in his own ministry and then by Paul and his letters it's astounding. So, for example, she says, "Let it be, uh, uh, let it be done to me according to thy word." Done is a softer form of the Lord's prayer when Jesus teaches us to pray, "Thy will be done." Yeah, he's echoing his mother when she says, "How is this going to be possible?" And she says, uh, "The angel says, uh, with God, all things are possible.'" And what does Jesus say when he starts talking about things that seem impossible? He's quoting what he only would have known naturally speaking, from his mother's recounting of that event, right? So she's got a, she's the icon of the church, and that, that gets into the, the masculine-feminine distinction that's disappearing from culture. Where is that to be preserved but in the church? So that the church has a, a Marian quality. She calls herself a doula. You know, she's the, the female bondservant of the Lord in her song. Well, the apostles in their letters introduce themselves as doulos, and apostles. We are the bondservant of the Lord. So they've identified their role is to serve him the same way that she has. Right. Right. But the the service is different. It's not that I, she's not an apostle. She's his mother. That goes back into another principle in Hebrew that the word in Hebrew for birthing, like the, to give birth, is the same word that's used to build the nation. And so the parallel between femininity birthing and birthing building and establishing is all through the Bible. So here she is birthing the king who's ushering in and building his kingdom. So you get these very strong feminine and masculine distinctions that are preserved with a right Marian doctrine that have disappeared because either we say that, uh, and this is what's happening, been happening, you know, in, in the West, Western culture for 50 years, 60 years. Feminine females have value because they're masculine. Daryl, that's not true. Turn on any news outlet right now and look at what's happening to women's sports. Yeah. See, this and these things don't exist in a vacuum. Um, but what if Mary was presented as the icon, as she is scripturally, to the church today? And then you look at masculinity. What does that look like in the church today? I have a friend of mine. Um, he put this on on uh, social media, and I thought it's one. It's hilarious, but it's true. <laughs> so I'm going to share this and realize it's probably going to offend a quarter of the listeners. Um, but you're probably going to laugh at the same time. So uh, masculine and feminine. Okay, here's an example. How many times do you hear about you know the the guy who's in his early 30s who's gone and become very successful in his company? He's doing he's just doing really well financially, stable, healthy looking guy, healthy guy. And he and he meets a young woman who's a barista at at the, the the a coffee place, right? And they hit it off, and she's like, "Yes, I'll marry you." 
she leaves her job as a barista because he's doing well and you know they go off and get married, right? Everyone's like, okay, they clap their hands. Oh, that's a good story. How many times does a young woman in her early 30s who's been very successful go find a guy who's working as a barista <laughs> making piddly change money and say, and say, hey, will you marry me so she could take care of him? That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not trying to press gender roles in a way that um, is reminiscent of bad, you know, bad appropriations of this in the mid mid, uh, mid 20th century, because I think even many of those is a failure to recognize Mary, you right. know, like that, that's, that, uh, I don't know where it's, I mean, I've heard it around, you hear it around certain parts of, of the United States, not anymore, but it was a joke, you know, that women are supposed to be barefoot and pregnant, right? Where is that coming from? That is not the picture of Mary in scripture. Right. Is she pregnant? Yeah. But she's the Ark of the Covenant, man. Right. You better treat her right. And look at her proximity to Jesus. Right. Luke says uh, the words of Simeon when he's when Christ is presented at the temple that a sword's going to pierce her own soul as well, and that happens at the cross. Michelangelo's uh, uh, statue captures that. What other picture is good for the church than her? And then we see again, as I've just mentioned with my my joke that you guys didn't laugh at at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the masculine and feminine roles when there's a right understanding of Mary and that that icon, iconography there, there's something very profound that the whole church grabs a hold of. So the clergy, like we are supposed to be doulos. We are the bondservants of the Lord because his mother was, right? But then there's distinction that's preserved. And we live in a day when those kinds of things that were easily taken for granted need to be reinforced again. Right, because we see it in Scripture like, Jesus did use women in 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 ministry and things like that in certain ways. So just coming to understand, like, there's a reason I think that God made male and female. He created them. That's what it says. So having a right understanding of gender, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for us to say that because people are so up in arms saying against that. You know, obviously there was there was a need for a lot of this things in 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 the world. I mean, I think women should be able to vote. I think women should be able to own land. <laughs> well, Things like that. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, so did Moses. You could, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that is in, in numbers. That accounts in right. numbers. Uh, yeah. No. And I, I realize we could go into a lot of that stuff. Right. And, and I'm wanting more so to emphasize who she is in scripture and how if there was a proper Marian doctrine in large chunks of the American church, we could alleviate a lot of these other cultural problems. It might take a generation. Because it's taken a generation to create them, yeah. Um, but we can alleviate a lot of these other problems that are going on. So, and uh, by the way, Alex, thanks for clarifying that you thought all those things. <laughs> appreciate that. I don't know what I'm going to say until I finish saying them. So, <laughs> forgive me. Yeah, uh, I, I I do want to kind of wrap this up with what is it like? Like, what is it? We talked about a rosary. What is it? What does that look like? What is what does a Marian devotion look like? What is her prayer and intercession? What is that? Right, um, because if you get out some old prayer books, you will discover people address her as if she's the fourth person of the Trinity. That's wrong, right? That that is idolatrous. But what do you do scripturally, and what do you do with the early church's practice here, where the church is still divide uh, one before it's divided? Um, we as Anglicans emphasize we pray with the saints. And Mary is a, uh, a special, uh, receives special honor 
special dignity, uh, pride of place, so to speak, because of who she is. Mm-hmm. And she still is who she was when you enter into uh, your existence without a body, right? Um, this is just normal saints. Set aside those who are in heaven bodily right now. Uh, you know, Enoch, Elijah, Mary, um, set, set that Moses there. Cause I don't think God would have taken his body to heaven and let him stay dead. <laughs> that'd be messed up. That, that'd be a little different, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's right. Um, but take, take those things into consideration for a second. You know, what, how do we interact with them? What does that look like? Well, we emphasize in the prayer book that we pray with them. And then Anglicans who do directly address Mary and the other saints address in a way that they're participating in the advocacy, that they're advocating. They're not our mediators. There's only one mediator, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. Scripture says that. But in the same way that we're, we would pray together here on earth, to be in Christ is to pray with people who are in Christ, whether they're in or out of the body. The New Testament talks about this a lot. Paul talks about whether we are in the body or not, we seek to be uh, pleasing to the Lord. What does that mean? How can, you, how can you be out of the body and not be pleasing to the Lord? I haven't figured that one out yet, Paul. Um, you know, so you have that. And then Moses and Elijah on the Transfig- Mount of Transfiguration, and then the entirety of the book of Revelation, all of the worship that's going on in heaven that John participates in, in the Spirit, which is a New Testament way of saying, it's Sunday, and he's celebrating the liturgy somehow, uh, where he is on Patmos. That's, that's the implication. So we emphasize the advocacy of the saints, and any of the uh, any Anglicans who would directly address Mary or any of the others are not speaking to them, and this is for those who don't know about this, all right? They're not speaking to them because they can grant petitions, they can, that they can grant prayers, it's because you are asking them to pray with you in the same way that you would ask your pastor, your neighbor, you call your family member on the phone. You know, you pick up the phone now, you call somebody a distance who's far away to pray with you. Well, the people that are in Christ, you're one body with them, right? And so that's what they're doing, okay? For those who aren't who are unfamiliar with that. So what you see in the liturgy, the majority use liturgy of the prayer book is not direct address to any particular saint, but lots and lots and lots of praying with the saints and at times for the ones who have died, especially on a feast day or, um, well, not a feast day. That's typically the ones that we're remembering, uh, praying with, uh, the, the, the people who've died when they've died and the, right around the time of their funeral, you're praying for that person to be at peace. Again, none of that's foreign to the early church. None of that's foreign to the New Testament. You know, Paul says about Onesimus, may he receive mercy from the Lord on that day. And the Greek tense indicates Onesimus has died. Onesiphorus. I'm mixing up the name. Onesiphorus. The, um, the, this guy's already died, and Paul is referring, you know, in prayer that he would receive mercy from Christ on that day. So you've got that going on. So, you know, I would kind of bring the question around this way because it's really easy to get caught up in unnecessary debate and some necessary debate about this is that are we going to give less honor to the Blessed Virgin than Gabriel and Elizabeth? And I don't think that's a good idea. And so find a way, especially at Christmas, and ask the Lord because I know we've got a whole lot of people from different Christian traditions in our own congregation. Um, 
whether they've been out of church for decades and have just come back. And so they're like, this is a, a new idea to them where they're, you know, feeling drawn to the Anglican form, um, which should just be patristic anyway. Uh, and then our listeners ask the Lord, ask the Lord, Lord, how, how do I understand this? Show me in scripture and give me insight into what it is, uh, particularly with, with the blessed Virgin Mary. And then with, you know, these other things, I recommend go back and listen to our, our episode on the communion of the saints. But I think this is a good way for people to, to begin that process. Because you don't want to fall into the errors of idolatry, but you don't want to fall into the contemporary practice of pretending as if these people are gone. Absolutely. Because that's not true either. Alex, this is when you're supposed to plug in the Via Media, your quote on that. It's all Via Media, buddy. <laughs> well, you know what we didn't talk about are the Marian apparitions. Well, speaking of that, we'll, we'll talk about that real quick. We have a shrine to that in, in our local area, in, our, in the county. Um, we have a, a Marian shrine over there, and it, it, it walks through the her uh, the apparitions uh, in Fatima. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. We uh, I go out there every once in a while, and... You know, I'm not. I'm not going to tell people this in my church, but I go over there and uh, do the rosary while I'm walking around there, and just you know, I'm I'm praying to the Lord. You know what I mean? I'm asking the Lord to help me, and I'm asking Mother Mary to pray for me. You know, there are Anglicans that would encourage you to go further, and there are some that would say, "Slow down." <laughs> right. That's, that's part of the Anglican ethos. That's the V media there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the Marian apparitions. Yeah, the one in Fatima, in 1917. It's pretty astounding. It is. The documented video footage, the newspapers. Um, you, you take that one, look at uh, Guadalupe, Our mm-hmm. Lady of Guadalupe, the appearance there to Juan Diego in 1536. Ish, yeah. Something so. like that. Um, and some of the others. You know, how do you, and here, and this is going to be the way that you can gauge not just Marian appearances, but angels. Right? How is it? Do you know if it's really an angel or if it's a saint? We talked about some of this, I think, in our Communion of the Saints podcast. But how do you discern this? Well, are they talking about Jesus? Are they promoting Jesus? Are they calling you to a stronger life of prayer and devotion? Um, because there are some people who don't believe any kind of miraculous things like this happen. Well, I don't believe that. I think that is a woeful approach to Scripture. And the reading of Scripture, because it treats the accounts in the Gospels as just historical records instead of ongoing ontological realities in the Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit decides to do something out of the ordinary, why are we going to get in His way? And the people that say, well, God doesn't do that, but the Holy Spirit can do whatever He wants. The problem is, almost all the folks that I've known and talked with that say the Holy Spirit can do whatever He wants always say, always say, but He didn't do that. So he's only doing the things that they think he can do, which turns out to be nothing. So, uh, you know, I would I would caution one: don't believe all of these accounts that you hear. You know, I some uh, I was in college and somebody's toast had the picture of the Virgin Mary on it. You know, and I think they were trying to sell it or something. Avoid that's nonsense. <laughs> but when you when you get something where there's something that happens that's documented the way the stuff in Fatima was. And the, the number of people who come to Christ because of it. Right. Wait, that's not that's not the demons. That's not the devil. Yeah, if they're pointing to Christ. You know, there's accounts of uh, rose petals, certain smells, things like that. Like, right. But it's all pointing to Christ. Yeah, there's all kinds of particular manifestations that are associated right. with these things. Um, 
And I, hey, I'll say this for the folks that might be listening to their, that are um, never heard about this. Send us direct questions. We we'll give you direct answers because I can't, I can't gauge what questions people may be having on it. Uh, but we can tell you directly. You know, I heard about this. What, what does the Bible say? And we can tell you what the Bible says or lack thereof. Uh, but is she living in the presence of God, interceding for the church? Yeah. Yes. And are there these accounts in history that baffle the mind, but somehow Jesus is glorified where she has uh, supposedly appeared? Yes. And that didn't start in the 1800s in Lourdes. It didn't start then. The earliest record we have that she appeared is to Gregory Thaumaturgus, mm-hmm. the wonder worker. And he's he is, what what is he, 100 years before Nicaea? Yeah. I mean, he's really, really early in Christian history. And it wasn't just her, it was the Apostle John. And then some of the, the, the phrases that she used in talking to him, he used in his teaching, which gets picked up and used in the Nicene Creed. Right. So, you know, we don't live a Christian life devoid of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is much bigger than our cognition. It's spiritual. Yeah. And so we want to be discerning. We don't want to believe everything we hear but we don't want to be closed off to things that God wants to teach us. Well, I think we did a good job talking about this topic today. I would, I would hope so. Definitely covered a lot of stuff. Probably insulted a lot of people. So, <laughs> Well, you know, Caleb, I hope we captured the breadth. We captured what Scripture clearly says, what history agrees upon, but then tried to capture the breadth of people's experience. Right. I hope. I hope we did. So... Okay, Don't try not. to go look for Mary in your toast. <laughs> and if you do, call us. We'll sell it on eBay for yeah, you. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you know. But uh, anyway, that's going to do it for us uh, for this week. Uh, once again, I'm Caleb, and we're here with Alex, Adam, and I'm Daryl. And see you next week.